And welcome to the Rick Retreat Horror Cast, hosted by yours, Ghoulie, Ricky J. Duarte. This week, I am bringing on an extremely special guest, someone who is very influential in the horror community and specifically the queer horror community, kind of a trailblazer, if I can say so myself. My guest is a sound editor, he is a filmmaker, director, he's a creator in general, and an all around pretty fucking cool guy. Please welcome to the podcast, Roman Kimienti. Not only did you say my last name right, but that was like the most uh, kick-ass opening I've ever had, thank you. Wow, I've (laughs) got a little bit of a, a reputation for opening asses in a kick-ass way never mind we're gonna go on with the podcast (laughs) wonderful gusto thank you hey i'm so glad you're here roman is a co-director of the immensely popular and as i mentioned super influential film scream queen my nightmare on elm street a documentary about a nightmare on elm street 2 and mark Patton's experience in that film specifically roman tell us a little bit about that I mean, I think everybody seems to know about it, but, uh, you know, we all know it's the backstory of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which over the last 10 years has really, really built up a lot of reputation. Uh, Now, the story's out there about Mark's experience in Hollywood, getting cast in this horror movie, and then getting outed as a gay man at a time where it was absolutely a nightmare to do to be a gay man. So following him along really changed my life um as a horror fan it was like one of the greatest opportunities for me i grew up loving nightmare on elm street particularly nightmare on elm street and nightmare on elm street 2 um so it was it was really surreal for me to be able to be a part of that film and joining with tyler jensen who really like as a team me mark and tyler really were able to learn a lot about documentary filmmaking, doing stuff on the fly, doing stuff um, when you don't have enough money to do it. Like there, in and being able to also stand up tall and tell this story while you've still got like herds of horror fans that still use the term faggot, and you know uh, the homophobia was alive and well. So being able to take this film that was almost sort of like people were always like kind of scratching their heads, wondering like what what film is this what are you talking about to oh wow this is fantastic and sort of giving a voice to a lot of the queer people that were already horror fans but in the shadows still and now it's kind of boomed right we've got podcasts like this that are like super popular it's it's a whole new realm i love it thank you for calling my podcast super popular (laughs) i I think what your film was able to do, not only to give a voice to queer horror fans, uh, but also just kind of let 
everyone know that there are more people out there like them, right? It, it, oh, for sure. Yeah. It kind of joined everyone together in a way there hadn't really been, you know, the horror documentary um, craze has been going on for, I'm going to call it about 20 years now. My guest last week produced Halloween 25 Years of Terror, and I kind of count that as the first one of its kind, you know? Yeah, almost 20, Jesus, almost 20 years ago. So this is where it has evolved to. When you were younger and watching Nightmare 2, were you? did you pick up on these kind of alleged queer undertones in the film? Was that part of your experience watching this movie? No, I didn't really pick up on that. Not in the way that I think you're asking. Okay. Um, I was... I don't remember exactly. I mean, I think I was 14. Um, I was still in middle school or I was about to be in middle school. That's what it was. Uh, so was a little too young to have such sophisticated subtext pop into the forefront of my mind. But um, I was I immediately identified with this movie for mo for various reasons. I also have. I have um. I feel like a lot of people also, I, I, I don't, I guess I bristle a little bit when I say like, you, you know, to identify with this movie means that you are queer. I feel like the one thing that I like to also state is that being an outsider and being an outcast or feeling like you don't fit in isn't exclusively queer. Although it is important that we now realize that that's like kind of a, a shared experience that straight and gay youth can have. But I also feel like this movie plays well for anyone that feels like they just don't fit in with the norm. Starting a new school, moving to a new house, not being a jock kid, you know, like <laughs> I think everybody got picked on at that time. So I feel like it's it's not only was this movie important to me because I was able to uh, reach across the aisle and speak to straight audiences who wouldn't normally go see a gay film, especially one that was a documentary. Um, and, and I feel like it's also important for us to be able to find our common ground too, just as people and say, we all feel like shit. Sometimes all of us experience, you know, what the character in the movie was experiencing. So I, yeah, that's what I identified with. I was about to go into middle school, like the worst time, fucking worst time of being a kid is middle truly, school, right? Truly. Absolutely worst. Kids are awful to each other. And then if you also are a little left of center, it just it intensifies. So it was also the very first slasher movie that I was brave enough to watch start to finish. Because oh, wow. before that, I was into Carol Ann, you know, ghost stories and things like that. But it wasn't really in Freddy Krueger was a whole new level for me. So he pulled and, you out of the light, Carol Ann, and into the dark, as it were. Absolutely. It was, I was hooked. I was already like super infatuated with Freddie and the, and the VHS boxes and the stories of like my, my older brother, my, uh, my friend's older brothers who would go to the movies and were like, please tell us everything that happened. Cause we were too young to get in. Um, so I wanted to get there. I was just waiting for my opportunity. And so finally I had a sleepover with friends and my dad let us rent nightmare Two. scared. It was terrifying at the time terrifying like i know now we can watch these things and think it's mild you know this one doesn't have as much blood and guts but the music the lighting the knives coming through the fingers all that stuff was just like i didn't think i was gonna make it through that film <laughs> 
Such a formative time in one's life. When I turned 13, we had a, slum a slumber party birthday. My birthday's in October, so I would always have these Halloween-themed birthday parties. And my parents rented, my mom rented uh, Army of Darkness and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And everyone watched oh Army God. of Darkness. <laughs> everyone watched Army of Darkness and it was fun. And, you know, we were <laughs> laughing the whole time. And then we put on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I remember this kid, Julian, who was like, I'm going to join the military one day. I can't wait to go to war one day. America. <laughs> and as soon as Leatherface <laughs> slides that fucking metal door open and whacks the guy in the head with his, with his mallet, Julian started crying and had to leave the room and my mom paused the movie <laughs> and she says anyone else who wants to leave the room now may I feel like your mom is my hero right now <laughs> nobody left the room and Julian was just alone in my bedroom for the rest of the night that's amazing put him in the place see there you go actually that's that's quite a combination like army of darkness isn't scary clearly it's fun yeah. And then Texas Chainsaw is like a whole new level. So my mom had seen Texas Chainsaw. She knew what she was doing with that. Army of Darkness, I picked out at the video store because Bruce Campbell had his like open shirt and sleeveless with bulging muscles. Like, Oh, he's a big on, for sure. Absolutely. On the VHS cover. And so yeah. but that was all me turning 13, being a horny that little adolescent. <laughs> Ty <laughs> my co-director Tyler always talks about how Army of Darkness was one of his first horror film experiences i think i'm quoting this right um and it's funny because like when you're i guess when you're at that age you're just excited to see something with that theme because in the whole series it's really it's like clash of the titans of horror or something you know it's it, it's it's not what is the the not claymation it's a different thing but oh like with the stop motion and stop motion thank yeah, you yeah 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 yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I always I I always say the Lost Boys is the movie that made me gay. It's like punk rock, leather clad motorcycle riding vampires. That's exactly my type. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't know if it, I think it was the movie that really kind of pushed me in the direction style wise to say, uh, you know, I'm going to come out more. Yeah. I'm going to be myself more. It was definitely the Lost Boys was a big deal. So. I think Joel Schumacher, between that and putting Chris O'Donnell in a rubber Robin suit, <laughs> there was no possible way I was not going to turn out to be a big old faggot. Yeah. So you did mention how uh, Nightmare 2 and kind of that outcast feeling, the otherness of the character in that and how it was kind of something that you're related to. It's actually a big reason why I wanted you to talk about the movie we're talking about today. And I was so happy when, so I oftentimes give my guests a list of films to look at and pick one that resonates with them. And this was the one that you selected. And I'm super glad to hear that, but we're gonna get to that in a minute. I would really actually love if you would talk about yourself a little bit more. You have such an interesting like lifespan. And- it... <laughs> That very, a short lifespan, right? Uh, yeah, definitely shorter than mine. And, uh, <laughs> um, what, could you just like share a little bit of how you got into, I think it would, if you can talk about like feeding into your work in entertainment, I think it'll also kind of feed into the movie we're talking about today. Uh, yeah, I guess it's, I, I have a very unconventional road, I guess, that my life has taken. Um, I didn't grow up wanting to be a filmmaker and obsessing over movies and, you know, going that way. I actually started out being a makeup artist i moved from san francisco to la just to go to makeup school and um 
I I wanted I I liked entertainment, but I I've had my hand in so many different pots. I was a DJ before that. I made my money working in the club scene for all of my life, and then I just started doing makeup, and I immediately became like uh, I was on Hollywood sets. I was working on everything you can imagine, or if I wasn't working, I was catering to them. I was working for a company that brought that would deliver their makeup and hair supplies. So I was visiting all of these. You know, everything from Charmed to Wheel of Fortune, I got to know everybody on those sets, which for a 22-year-old kid is pretty remarkable. And I totally took all that experience for granted at the time because I was just surrounded by all of this stuff all the time, living in Hollywood, partying in Hollywood, meeting people all the time. It's easy to, like, looking back now, I think, whoa, like, not very many people have the opportunity to, you know, meet do Pam Anderson's makeup or go to parties with Rod Stewart. You know, it sounds fabulous, but I quickly moved to New York thinking that I wanted still to find something more. And that's when I started putting myself through audio school and audio engineering and working on horror films and documentaries and commercials. Like I'm obsessed with, I finally feel like I've settled into my career of sound. I love sound i've always loved music i've always loved editing remixing stuff or just editing things i love it so i feel like i i took this side road to get here and yeah i i I think that there's been a i've had my hand in a lot of different pots and i don't think it's done yet either i don't think i'm just gonna stay right here where i'm at i see see new things i want to try i feel like once i do something also i'm kind of ready for the next thing yeah and Tyler and I jumped into this Scream Queen film, knowing we wanted to make films, knowing that we had something to say and that Mark had an even bigger thing to say. But we didn't actually know what we were getting into. You know, making a documentary is very different than making a narrative film. It's also different when your film or your story is playing out in real time, as opposed to just documenting something that's completed. So we had to constantly learn as we go. It was exhausting. It was fabulous. Uh, And that's kind of what I love. That's what I've always liked that. I've been hired to do things that I didn't really have the full scope of what I was getting into. And on some way, I just love that. Just dive in and do it. Throw me into the fire and I'll figure it out. That's how I work best. Yeah. I feel like I've done that for all of my life. And I think that that sort of like ignorance is what makes things work out. Because yeah. if you see the full scope, you, I would probably cringe and not go through the door. So I've always allowed myself to just trust that the energy I'm putting out there and the, and the professionalism that I will try to bring to everything is going to allow me to figure stuff out. And I, you know, I've never had anything completely collapse on me yet. So fingers crossed, but yeah. What a cool life. Like the longer I get to know you, the longer I've known you, like the, you just kind of casually mentioned these, like, like I knew about Charmed. <laughs> I knew about a make being a makeup artist. And I knew about, I did not know you worked on Wheel of Fucking Fortune. <laughs> I did. I took, I had hot pink hair and uh, I would ride the elevator with Pat Sajak and they would always talk about my hair. And uh, yeah, it was always uh, what color was my hair going to be the next time I was there was always a big deal for them. Um, It's funny because the set of Wheel of Fortune, you see how it is on TV, but it is so 
dumpy when you get there. It's like half of the set is just all unused props. And then they have this tiny little stage and you have to kind of climb over lumber and stuff to get there. Hollywood isn't as great when you see behind the scenes, you know? No, definitely not. Which we're going to get to when we talk about this movie. But before (laughs) we get to the movie, I promise we're going to get to it. First off, thank you for regaling that story and sharing uh, you know, inside about your work and your journey. And um, I do, I do have a question like, you know, your documentary is really interesting because it does kind of play out as a narrative and a little bit in that Mark goes on this journey and there is conflict that leads to some sort of a resolution at the end. Do you have aspirations of making a narrative film? Oh yeah. Uh, yes. I have, stuff that's already been it's already uh we've kickstarted some ideas stories that we've had unfinished for a while um a lot of these these things that i'm talking about i actually have experiences from my own life that i want to bring to light now and i needed to go through a little bit of therapy and self-reflection to be able to tell these stories properly yeah. And that's why there's been this gap since we finished touring with Scream Queen. Well, then there was COVID, which completely shut off our, our international tour. So we fortunately, we finished the U.S. And just as we're about to go overseas, everything shut down. So that was kind of a bummer. But at the same time, I realized I kind of needed uh, I needed some time to sort out some stuff from the past. I've been living with my my foot on the pedal my whole life. And I've now realized making Mark's story and having some time off that I have things that I need to unpack. And so I've I've spent the last couple of years doing that. And now I feel like I'm ready to start telling the stories that I've always thought would make good stories, but I really wasn't strong enough to be able to make amends with certain things. Mm. I know this sounds, you know, tragic or whatever, but if you're putting your own life on paper, even if it plays out in a comical way, you have to be able to have the the self-awareness to portray it properly. Yeah. And I was, so that's where I'm at. It's coming. I just needed to uh, get to a point where I was able to write about it from a place of, uh, I've crossed the bridge now, so. That's really amazing. That's really great. And you heard it her first on Rick Retreat Horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I, I hear what you're saying, though. You know, I, I love the horror journalism that I work in. I love being able to review and interview and and do. But I don't want to live my life writing about other people's work specifically. You know, I'm an actor and I'm a writer. And those are two things that I really need to, you know, want to take advantage of. And so I am in this place in my life as well, where, you know, now is the time. I guess this will lead us into the next section of the show, which is kind of uh, suggesting spooky and horror themed things that we've watched or observed or read or listened to recently. And I'm just going to mention again, how wonderful my experience with gray house on Broadway has been. Roman was uh, kind enough to record the audio from the talk back that I gave at this incredible Broadway play with Tom Kierdehy, lead co-producer of the show. And so Thank you for that, Roman. Of course. The uh, the audio turned out great. The episode, the bonus episode, even I was kind of worried because if people haven't seen this play, are they going to listen? People are listening. And that's really exciting to me. And the show yeah. is promoting my episode, which is really cool to me. But you got to see the play as well. But uh, my listeners have heard what I think about it and they maybe read my review, but it, uh, you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. And I've talked about it 
constantly since because, you know, I, I think I had mentioned to you before, I'm not somebody that loves, I like to walk into shows blind. Mm-hmm. I'm not big on watching trailers anymore or reviews before I'm going to see a show. I don't need to know. I mean, it would have been nice to kind of have some idea of like who's going to be in it, which I had a little bit of. That show was incredible. And it was funny because like the first thing that I'm doing is once I sort of see what their set is going to be and the and and we I get the mood with the sound, I look around at the audience and see like who's here. And I could see that there were some people that clearly would have that liked the horror aspect of it. But the majority of people, I don't think they knew what they had in store for them. And I loved that. It brings in a super eclectic group. I saw um, I saw it three times. And one of them was a Wednesday matinee. And that is notoriously like crinkly, crusty, mean, old, rich person time to go see a Broadway show. And <laughs> even on a Wednesday. Wait, is that true? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wednesday matinee is like trying to walk around hell's kitchen after a wednesday matinee has let out is one of the most frustrating (laughs) times to maneuver around new york but so anyway even at a wednesday um matinee it was a pretty like interesting and eclectic crowd that was there you had an interesting experience with it because we went into we got to go into the stage door and you saw the set before they put the curtain down so yeah. that kind of reveal uh, was, I'm not like you would just kind of saw the set first and the set is a big point of discussion for a lot of people that have seen this play. But Mm-mm. again, I'm really grateful that you uh, recorded the audio and I'm really glad that you got to see it. I'm just glad also, thank you for taking me number one, but also the fact that they're able, they're doing something like this, Yeah, you know, that it wasn't, I don't, I think it does a disservice to that story to just say, oh, it's a scary story. No, mm-hmm. it's more than that. It's, you take it with you. The, the You come home with, yeah, okay, it had some fantastic sound design, fantastic acting, scary things that happen on stage. But the story was so intricately woven together in a way that it lingers. So when you yeah. get home, you're like, that reminds me, or that's bringing up things in my own life. And that's what horror is supposed to do, really. So two thumbs up. Good, good, (laughs) good, good. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. Uh, Well, there's one more thing that I want to talk about that I saw uh, this week. It's uh, a horror film just released on Shudder. It's been getting some buzz in the the festival circuit. Uh, It's directed and written by Ted. uh, I can never say his name right. You might know him, Ted Giagigan. Geogegan. He runs in our circles. We have, if you don't know him, we both know people who know him. Regardless, uh, the film is he, uh, this man also directed, we are, or wrote, We Are Still Here and Mohawk and uh, was one of the producers on Queer for Fear. The movie's called Brooklyn 45. And I worry that it's, um, I think that there's a very misleading poster attached to this film. And I didn't watch the trailer, but I have to assume it's probably not giving people the right uh, idea of what this is. It is certainly a horror film, but it's really first and foremost like a drama giving actors incredible opportunities to show like how fucking talented they are. Almost, I kind of, I reviewed it. I compared it to um, like No Exit meets The Deer Hunter set post World War II. And I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting film. It does not feel of this time. 
and uh, Anne Ramsey, who is always incredible, gives a great performance. But really, uh, Christina Klebe, who is no stranger to the horror genre. Uh, she was in Zombies Halloween. She was in Proxy. Uh, she's done some interesting work, does a remarkable fucking job in this movie. So I wish it success. I would say watch this movie. Don't have expectations based on the poster that you have seen or uh, maybe what how people are describing it. I did see, I'm looking at the poster now and I've, I've seen this a number of times and it definitely gave me a completely different impression of what this movie is about. Based I on have... the poster, I would not have watched this movie. It kind of uh, looks like a happy-go-lucky, yeah. like want, like uh, like it, it's like a wannabe Ghostbusters look, and that is the complete yeah. opposite of what this movie is. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, it definitely looks like there. It's comedy, right? And there are, are humorous aspects, but it's first and foremost a, a ghosty drama about facing the sins of your past. But so that's my recommendation. Do you have any recommendations for the week? For the week, um, or the month, or you know? Yeah, I mean. I, I don't know if it's not a new film. It's a modern film. Um, I actually missed it when it was released, and I just recently watched it on a whim and fell in love with it. It's called The Love Witch. Oh, my God. I adore this movie. Yeah. I'm uh, obsessed with it. Style-wise, just was, like, through the roof. Yep. Nailed it. I loved it. I, I don't even really know how to describe it, which is why I hesitated listing this as my... I don't even know if I have to. It It's just a super sexy, super stylized female horror. I don't know if it's right to say female horror. Uh, well, it's female directed. directed. Yeah. yeah, it's female storytelling. And I think we clearly need more of that. And so this was the perfect. I didn't even know anything about it. I just thought, what's this movie? Put it on. I have uh, the Night Flight subscription channel so i was watching it on there and it was fantastic so it's great it's i have thought about doing an episode on it um more deadly is a podcast uh, of um female driven horror movies uh and i have had them on the show we did blood diner and we had a fucking incredible time talking about blood diner we talked about doing the love witch i find it difficult when i sit down to think about how to talk about that movie i find it difficult to figure out how to talk about that movie you yeah. know, if when I get to the point where I figure out how I want to do like, like showcase my reverence for this film, I want to have those ladies back on the show because Rachel and Ariel are incredible. Shout out to you girls. I miss you. Let's do another <laughs> episode soon. All right. Great. Well, hey, Roman, why don't we get into the movie we're talking about tonight? Fade to Black. Yes. Roman. Yes. What do you say we go Rick or treating? Let's go Rick or treating. Fade to Black, 1980, written and directed by Victor, or, fuck, written and directed by Vernon Zimmerman, fuck, <laughs> written and directed by Vernon Zimmerman. This movie was kind of a difficult thing for him to pull off, and in fact, it ended in a lawsuit. The film uses samples of classic cinema throughout the ages, and he was taken to court uh, under claims that he did not get the proper um, clearance or permission to use a lot of these film clips and uh, with the demand of removing it from theaters. So the movie was not a huge success uh, as it turns out, but it has lived on. 
And I think in the, if, as recent as the last couple of years, it's really started to get a lot more focus, a lot more attention, and a lot more of like the appreciation that it deserves. Roman, when was the first time that you saw this movie? You know, I did not see this in the 80s. I, I saw this in the late 90s. I'm actually really, really glad that you brought this movie up or that we're doing this film because I I have flip-flopped back and forth about this film. I've seen it. Every time I see it, I change my stance on it. Yeah. And now I have now I have like a it's in both hands here. So I saw it in the late 90s. I've seen it maybe three times since then. Mm-hmm. So a number of times. Yeah. How about you? When did it you was, first see it? It was one, the poster was floating around on the interwebs for many, many years, and I couldn't get my hands on it. And so I it, I think it was during lockdown that I finally was able to see this film. Mm. And uh, so within the last few years, and it is one I visited even before this week. I always, you know, watch my movies two or three times before an episode, but I, I think I had watched it two more times since then. Literally same as you, trying to wrap my head around exactly how I feel about it. And you know we're going to talk about it but it's it's kind of an incredibly smart and interesting concept that is not delivered as perfectly as i wish that it were i was looking at some people's reviews of this and one person described it as taxi driver meets henry portrait of a serial killer meets polyester and i think that's the perfect <laughs> description yeah of Fate yeah Black. i mean i want to break it down with you for sure I feel like the strength of this movie is beyond just what the movie is. In some ways, I think it is taken on something new. And that's what I'm I'm kind of excited to talk about. But we should probably explain what's going on with the on on screen first. You know? Yeah, definitely. Uh it was just real quick made with a on a budget of 1.8 million and it only brought in 50 15 million uh domestically. Not a huge hit. It actually really took off in France. The movie I I think it's interesting because now, especially in horror movies, they are filled with references to movies from before their time. This film in 1980, that was not really something that was happening. What is considered a classic in this film? All right. If he's watching movies from the 30s and 40s and it's 1980, that's like us watching movies from 1980. <laughs> right? It's oh, absolutely. The, it's the same timeline. I mean, in 19, 1980s, we had a huge 1950s influence in sure. movies and music. And a lot of people were... Uh, and this is where I'm going to be a little finger waggy with the young generation. Like we were still being exposed to stuff. I mean, we kind of would roll our eyes at like disco or or anything from the previous generation. But we were definitely uh, kind of schooled a little bit on the classics of film and music. And so I, I feel like there was. And also there was a lot like if you were in Hollywood walk down Hollywood Boulevard in the 80s and 90s and it was still old Hollywood posters music the idols that they had were still alive and I feel like we weren't just living in the now like people tend to the younger generations tend to today I feel like there was a little bit more or at least I saw there was there was a very common theme of like young guys that were obsessed with cinema and they were talking about the golden age of Hollywood. And that I think 
was this guy did seem to be obsessed with something that was a little bit before his time. I feel like 1950s would have been more like the typical throwback or callback. Um, Yeah, instead of like the 30s and 40s that he's going for. Right. Which makes him, which puts him on the outskirts of everyone else around him all the more also, don't you think? Which also makes me confused why he had that relationship with his aunt. Because it seems like that should have been a bonding thing for them. Again, we'll probably get there. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot to talk about with this movie. The film stars Dennis Christopher as Eric Binford. All right, so Dennis Christopher had just been in the Oscar-nominated film Breaking Away. And so he had gotten a lot of acclaim for his performance in that film. And then this was his follow-up. Piece, which I think is super interesting to go from something that you got so much acclaim for to this very risky, borderline sleazy screenplay. Like there are, this movie goes back and forth from like, wow, that's an incredible shot. Holy cow, I love this dialogue. This is a very sleazy and disgusting and uncomfortable thing to look at. You know, yeah. <laughs> it flip flops yeah. a lot. He would go on to play Eddie Spaghetti in the TV miniseries version of It. And those are his two most, most notable credits that I'm familiar with. Tim Thomerson plays Dr. Moriarty. If anybody didn't need to be in this movie, it's that character. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he he's done a lot of work. He was in Near Dark, one of my very favorite vampire movies. Same. Love that movie. Uh, yeah. Gwyn, Gwyn Guilford as Officer Anne Oshenbull. Fun fact, she is Chris Pine's mother, and she was pregnant with him at the time of filming this movie. That is wild to me. Yeah. I guess I also, I mean, I guess I didn't know how old he is, but I thought he was my age, you know? I thought so, too. Yeah. Well, so he's 40, I guess I'm still older than him, 40. so we'll just leave that out there. Norman Burton as Marty Berger. We got Linda Carriage as Marilyn O'Connor. I fucking love her in this movie. Holy cow. She did a lot of genre stuff, a lot of what seems to be very sleazy genre movies, which now I just want to go down a black hole of watching Linda Carriage movies. I'm so fascinated with her. And as far as I'm concerned, the best possible Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe lookalike of all time. Like, it's uncanny. Any it was other... uncanny. And it wasn't just the 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 makeup. It's also her mannerisms. Her she mannerisms did such a and... perfect job. It's funny because she looks like Marilyn Monroe and she talks like Olivia Newton-John because she's Australian, mm-hmm. but she's got it. She's got the breathiness. Even when she sings Happy Birthday to You, she's got that kind of uh, soft but warbly vibrato that Malar- that, Malarian, that Marilyn had. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and she, I mean, clearly, she stole the show, yeah. right? Yeah. She was, she was, it, you don't find people with that, that just click like that very often. So this whole movie was riding on this performance for well, sure. And the character is not super, not well-written like at, at all. all. And she brought something, <laughs> she has given no agency whatsoever in this film. In fact, the final act of this movie, we'll get to it. I don't love the direction <laughs> that she heads. Morgan Paul as Gary Bialy, sleazy producer. We got James Luisi as Captain Gallagher. Eve Brent as Aunt Stella, who... In my head, I could have sworn this was Susan Terrell and then was very disappointed to realize that it wasn't and then completely delighted at this woman's performance in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why you would think that about I would like to Terrell. watch a, like a, an alternate universe where Susan Terrell did play this role. <laughs> 
Well, then you'd be watching Butcher Baker. Butcher Nightmare Baker, Maker. Nightmare Maker. Yeah. yeah, which is another one that I really need. I want to do on this podcast real bad. Yeah. Uh, and then Marcy Barkin as Stacy. Uh, oh, and Mickey Rourke. Hello. Second movie of all time as the bully, Richie. Right. I didn't even recognize him at first. Um, I did. I was sitting there thinking, is that Mickey? Is that Mickey? And then I looked it up on IMDb oh. and it was him. They had a good cast. All the people in this uh, were playing. I think they were rightfully cast for the mm-hmm. most part. They had good. They had good people. Their characters worked, but a lot didn't. A lot didn't. I oh. Dennis Christopher specifically got mixed reviews. Some praise and some like hatred for his performance. I have nothing but like applause for what he accomplishes in this movie. I think he's incredible from start to finish. Agreed. I think he's good. But, you know, when you start reading the critique that people have, you have to wonder, like, are you hating in the right place? Like, is it is it the actor's responsibility? You don't like what was written for them, because a lot of times like his character in particular is all over the place. His character. What I do appreciate about this movie is that he there's a lot of sympathy surrounding him, but he is not a sympathetic character. You don't at all. You don't watch this and really cheer for him and his behavior in this movie. And I think that it could have been very easy for the film to go in that direction, even if accidentally, especially in 19. I love this area in like the space of horror films where it's where like it's kind of I said the same thing when I did Happy Birthday to me. They're figuring out the formula for what will become 80s horror, and they're not quite there yet, right? They This movie even alludes to Halloween. This is post-Halloween. This is post-Black Christmas. This is post-Hammer Horror and, and all of that. And it's this very interesting kind of experimental place in the zeitgeist of, of horror cinema. I'm trying to hold this comment back till we get to the end, but I'll put I'll put a little out there now. To me, this movie plays very much like Nightmare 2 plays. Interesting. The dip, the the way the characters are developed, where I, where I can see as a filmmaker that maybe somebody else had brought, you know, came in and it derailed some sort of something or other. And then the final act where you're like, okay, this is what we think we're supposed to do. It just, I feel like it was a little bit of a patchwork, and it had great intentions. Yeah. And there's still a lot to be admired and entertained from this. But there's a lot to point out first yeah. before you can really, I do before, before I can settle on loving it, you know? Well, I can't wait to hear that final thesis on uh, on this film from you. I mm. do want to point out, I think that there's some pretty pretty cool behind the scenes work done. Music by Craig uh, Safan is all over the place, but when it works, it really works. Like moving from kind of like growly cello work into electric guitar in the same scene is incredible but then we move on to like a weird disco beat at the end that really ruins any sort of tension that you're trying to build and then uh editing james mitchell and barbara pakras again when it (laughs) works it's fucking awesome and then when it doesn't it really like just kind of breaks the tension of what's happening Uh, a couple great cinematography choices as well by alex phillips jr but roman why don't we get into the plot of the movie let's get into the plot let's tell people what it is we did fade to black no i mean what's happening so oh, yeah 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 so movie opens on a black screen and we hear the uh sound of james cagney speaking and dialogue from the film public enemy 
interspersed with Eric, like muttering to himself, like I've seen this movie before. He's kind of like, we can't see what he's doing. This is opening credits, but he's kind of like going through film canisters that he has trying to pick the next movie that he's going to watch. And is then as we kind of are, he is revealed to us. Um, oh, he's about to doze off. He's still wearing the clothes from the day before, minus pants. So he's in like boxer shorts. With he looks like um, fuck. What's the guy from Pretty in Pink? Um, oh, it... John Cryer. He looks like yeah, the guy who's in love with Molly Ringwald. But like yeah, yeah, ducky. yeah, yeah. He's yeah, he's dressed like Ducky without pants on. And Aunt Stella rolls in, and she is a fucking crazy person. In her, uh, she, wheel, in her wheelchair, she in, literally rolls in. Electric wheelchair, <laughs> rolls in, kind of opens the curtains, and, oh, wait, we should mention the special special appearance by Meryl Streep in this film. Right. Always. That, that was the weirdest distracting pinup behind so him in weird. all the bedroom scenes, right? So as I... <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's the thing though the movie is supposed to be judging him for all of the movie posters and pictures of movie stars on his walls and yet your bedroom and my bedroom yeah they are cup plastered with horror movie pictures and <laughs> like i have an entire fandom. Wall universal monsters fandom. yeah yeah <laughs> I thought his room looked fabulous. Yeah, a little messy. He could stand to clean it up. But so he's got this Meryl Streep cover of Newsweek right next to his bed that really is bizarrely placed. I guess would this have been just after? Oh, Kramer versus Kramer is in theaters in this movie. He walks past a um, a movie theater and that movie's showing. So she's a big deal now at this point. I guess so. And she's young. It's just hard for me to picture her as a pinup. But right. OK, yeah. Aunt Stella like turns on big band music and she like whacks on his bed with her cane and she's conducting a big band orchestra with her cane. She's walks into the room and she's just obnoxious right from the start. And he kind of growls himself out of bed and immediately lights a cigarette and he's coughing and he's got circles under his eyes. And he reminds me of myself before I went to rehab and he's, got <laughs> <laughs> he's just like chain smoking this entire fucking movie. And Aunt Stella just kind of goes off on him and she's trying to convince him to eat healthy. And if you don't take care of yourself, you're never going to make it till the age of 30. And he like blows smoke in her face and, and they don't like each other. And we'll find out why in just a bit. She says something weird. Like the one I, your uh, one eyed monster is going to soften his mind, much less his brain. Yeah. I did have to wonder what that monster was. She was referring to, but it clearly was the television. <laughs> or maybe it was just a really poorly written line. I, it could have been that as well. We learn <laughs> as he's getting ready to leave, we learn that he was left with her after the death of his mother. They were a dancing duo back in the day and she had men, important men lined up to marry her. And, but she found his father, that bastard and married him instead. And if it weren't for him, Aunt Stella would still have her legs because apparently one night she was at a party and he was four years old and got sick and the babysitter called and she left and got into a car accident and lost the use of her legs. It is a confounded story that is too complicated. <laughs> too complicated to also have been brought up off the cuff. Like the way she says it was like, oh, and by the way, before you leave for school, let me remind you of what happened. Yeah. It was, was so heavy handed. Yeah. yeah. It's over <laughs> the top. It's bad dialogue. She, I think it's the Susan Terrell syndrome for me of just this character actor. I think knowing exactly what movie she's in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, um, but still delivering like a dedicated performance. 
So he heads off to work and on his way out, he goes down the stairs. She's stuck kind of at the top of the landing. Uh, they live in this Norman Batesy house right next to the beach in Venice. We then meet a total weenie named Dr. Moriarty. This man is like a fucking hippy dippy soy boy. Like <laughs> he's so lame. This guy is awful. And he's meeting the chief of police and he's being hired to work with criminals and try to rehabilitate them into society, which is great. Let's do this. Let's it was to... also really complicated of a, of a, uh, of his direction. What he was intending to do was a pretty complicated thing that they really just cram packed into 10 seconds. Yeah. It's where, like 10 seconds yeah. of two men yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah. Out of the blue, but he also looks like a Marlboro man, but they this is probably the one miscast part he should have probably been played by somebody that was a little softer i'll agree with that i'll agree with that because the guy who's playing the chief works for me like it's not a great scene but he's doing a very good job in it interrupted by officer ann ocean bowl who kind of takes him away saves him from the situation they have a discussion about how the chief just doesn't appreciate my kind of work and you know, I'm trying to help people. And she lets him know, well, his, his, was it his son or his father was shot in cold blood by a doped up maniac. And so he's, that's why he's a hard ass. She takes him downstairs at the police station and shows him what will be his office, which is essentially the old drunk tank with uh-huh. a, a lock on the bars and everything. And it's a fucking mess with boxes <laughs> and storage everywhere. And uh, we already know they're going to fuck later. <laughs> right. It's in the air. Yeah. Eric goes to work he works in a like a film production like literal movie film like not a film studio but like producing movies on film uh and then distributing them to movie theaters he's like the courier who does that on a vespa and it's a pretty cool looking place to work in that it's just rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of film canisters also he seems pretty unsupervised He's got his own little cubicle. He's doing whatever he wants. But also, I couldn't really tell what it was at first, if they were producing just movie posters. I thought it was posters because he says Prince. And then I realized, oh, no, it's Prince of film film that he's. Yes. But I was like, so they're just printing posters and he has to deliver them. It's but then what are all these canisters doing here? And also, why are you delivering movies on a Vespa? Like, whatever. Okay, yeah. go on. <laughs> but like you said, he's got his own little cubicle that he has made a sign out of like tape that says Binford Studios. He has aspirations of making movies one day, you know, big old dreams. And he meets his boss, Mr. Berger, who is <laughs> one hamburger away from a heart attack at all times. <laughs> this guy is like on edge and easily excitable who's pretty pissed off at him. He, you know, Eric's late again. He explains that he lost the petty cash and can I borrow some money? I have to like gas up the Vespa and his boss is like had it with him and freaks the fuck out on him, calls him a loser and, you know, and then immediately reaches for those heart pills. Like he needs these heart pills to get through a single day in his life. They were flying all over his head as he was trying to just down as many as he could. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, though, that like we've now met two people that are portrayed as not necessarily villains, but, you know, Aunt Stella and the boss 
are both supposed to be assholes, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't, the whole time I'm like, wait, no, they're kind of right. Like, yeah, they're playing it big, but like, I don't see the flaw in what they're saying. He literally just like took the bike and and lost the money. Uh, Any boss would be pissed. She's like, can you please not smoke and maybe like eat something healthy? Cause I'm trying to take care of you. And he's like blowing smoke in her face and walking away. So like already I don't have sympathy for this guy. And that's kind of an important thing. But again, we'll get there. No, it is. It is. <laughs> it's uh but I think that their over the topness is what makes this movie work. And ma- because we're, you know, watching this from Eric's perspective, he just sees these people as yelling at him all the time. And he's just like so out of touch with any sort of reality that he cannot accept responsibility for anything besides what is in his mind, his dream working in movies, which I guess is now starting to become just being in a movie as his life. Right. Yeah. 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 We meet, uh, Mickey Rourke as Richie and his buddy, I think his sidekick's name is like Joey or something stupid like that. Not that yeah. Joey's a bad name. Sorry, everyone named Joey. But, we hate uh, that name. <laughs> terrible name. Fuck you, Joey. So stupid. they work at the studio or at the, uh, the, uh, the film production center as well. And Richie's a bully. And like Eric is not a likable person. Neither is Richie. They have this back and forth where... <laughs> Eric just runs around asking, say, saying to people, I bet you didn't know. I bet you didn't know. I bet you didn't know this film fact. Uh, he's insufferable. And here, all right, here's my thing about Eric. First off, I think that he is named after the Phantom of the Opera, who is another hmm. famous incel in cinematic history. I also, I think I like this movie so much because film knowledge, film trivia, and like sharing films with people is my love language. For years and years, I would like force my, I would go out and buy movies I didn't want to buy on DVD just so that I could show it to a friend and mm. and like sit them down and like try. I felt like I was like, I feel like when I show someone a movie, I'm like trying to share a bit of my heart with them. Of course. And then if they're on their, if they're on their phone or like not appreciating what I'm trying to open their minds to, it really- Your heart is broken. Absolutely. I, yeah, I think it's I'm like- the same way with music. You're exposing, you're like, here is my heart. What do you think of it? And they're like, oh, cool, whatever. Yeah. Then, yeah, sucks. I don't. I don't think Eric is doing the same thing. I think that... <laughs> no, because you know what? He's not, that was, that was actually the thing that I think Aunt Stella mentioned in the beginning was something about him not being able to socialize properly. Yeah. And so what he's doing has nothing to do with connecting with other people. No. He's literally just like, what you're not honoring the classics you don't love these things he's clearly unstable Mm -hmm. because his comments come out of left field and he kind of goes zero to 60 with his attitude so again i'm like no pity man like yeah i kind of want to beat you up too (laughs) so i know you say he the other dude's a bully but i was like um you're in the workplace like don't yell at me who are you talking to like this? But whatever. Yeah, they set up a bet involving money, and it's like it's like twenty bucks each, which is probably about fifty bucks now, at least, right? Yeah. Oh no, I think did he say forty bucks a piece? At any rate, it was a lot of money. He asked them a piece of movie trivia and uh, stumps them, and stumps them, but gives them a couple days to come up with it. He thinks he's like getting away with something here. He thinks he's gonna like 
finally prove how cool he is to these guys and yeah like, that actually i was a little confused by i was like what's what is the point of this unless it was an immediate like it's not like they had this like trivia challenge relationship going on no these these guys are like we don't want we don't like you we want to kick your ass he's like well i bet you don't know this fact well i don't know and then they seem it starts to really out, take that ask, bait he's, he's walking past and they ask him hey you'll know this what's the name of the guy in some movie? And he does. And so then the two guys had placed a bet and Richie mm. wins and collects the money. And so then that's where that comes from. But I think it's, right. it's him maybe trying to be a part of the group a little bit, but still doing it in a really poor and pompous and shitty way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we cut to the beach and we have Marilyn and her friend. Oh, fuck. What's her friend's name? Stephanie? I don't her, know. I just, I just totally made that up. <laughs> well, it's Stacy, so not too oh, far okay. off. It's one of those right. 80, very 80s valley girl names. Yeah. Marilyn and Stacy are jogging on the beach and talking about Marilyn's modeling career and, you know, how she's uh, she gets noticed a lot because of how she looks and she's Australian. And then they stop, they stop jogging and say, man, I'm hungry. Let's go pig out, which is exactly <laughs> what I do every time I work out. <laughs> yeah. So they go to the diner and they're sitting down and I actually, it, I I could do without any of the cop story, like B story in this. And I could beef up these girls relationship and be super happy with this movie. They were great. They were, li- they were an odd couple of mm-hmm. friends that worked perfectly. The, uh, what's her name? Stacy. Yeah. You said she was fantastic because she was the voice of reason that was always on top of things. I, all of their interactions were super believable. Yeah, and Stacy's not like a downer either, you know? She's just they're they're both cool but not like cool in the most popular girl in town kind of way. Marilyn, mm-hmm. I think works because I have hung out with this girl. I have been friends with this girl. The girl who is too beautiful for her own good and knows it, but she's still incredibly kind and generous. And there's something maybe a little weird or like quirky about her as well. I've worked with this girl a lot. We love this girl. Sure. <laughs> she's always yeah, yeah. That I definitely agree. We needed more of these two people. These two characters were the fun part. The cops mm-hmm. are like, I feel like that had to have been written after the fact. I think, well, the cops are trying to bring the statement of nature versus nurture or you know, the kid never had a chance in and it just fails miserably. And I miserably. think there's supposed to be some humor with the cops that falls flat completely. I didn't even pick up humor. I, I just mean, thought the this harmonica is... scene. Oh, it's yeah, not great. I'll talk about that after this <laughs> diner scene. So, all right, the girls are hanging out at a booth and Eric walks into the diner, sits down. Did you did you hear his order? The guy at the counter says, will it be the usual two donuts and a hot dog and a large Coke? Donuts. <laughs> did not. I didn't catch that. He eats That's like Homer that. Simpson. <laughs> and so he says, yeah. And he looks over and he sees Marilyn. And then it it cuts to seeing Marilyn dressed as Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in the pink dress. And then it cuts back. Now, the movie before, let me mention this because this is important. When he's at the breakfast table with his Aunt Stella, he is holding a grapefruit in his hand, half a grapefruit. And the movie cuts into footage from public the public enemy 
of James Cagney shoving a grapefruit into a woman's face. And so he that's his way of imagining doing that to his aunt who's driving him crazy, right? In this scene, he like, not on the sly at all, scoots over a stool. <laughs> and then he scoots over another stool and these girls are like giggling at him because he's being fucking weird. And he asks her a trivia question and says, in Seven Year Itch, what was the movie that you got taken to? He's talking to her as though she is Marilyn Monroe. As the and, character. But she responds yeah. as though she is. And she says, oh, I, I, God, I won't do another Australian accent. <laughs> I have a buddy who hosts an Australian horror podcast. And every time he's on, I embarrass myself and insult him by trying an Australian accent. So I won't do it. So you could do a Maryland one. <laughs> be be sweet. No, I won't do that either. Okay. She says, oh, I don't remember. Like she's talking to him as though she's Maryland. Like she's kind of playing along with this. I think she thinks he's joking, but he's not. And he says, I'll give you a hint. It was green and slimy. And we see images of the creature from the Black Lagoon flash across the screen. She says, I got it. Frankenstein. And he says, no. And then Stacy cuts in and says something like, bug off, creep. And then it flashes back to Creature from the Black Lagoon. But it's the creature grabbing a woman and drowning her under the water. <laughs> I thought that actually this scene was important because it was the first time that I, I kind of settled and thought, Oh, you know what? That was really clever. Yeah, it is. I can I'm going to stay on this ride for a minute because the way that this whole diner scene played out, not only when he's sliding over, did they actually have if I don't know if you could hear it. It was very low in the mix, but the girls were like, did you just see him sliding over? Yeah. Like they were addressing all of this stuff where as a viewer, I'm like, is he supposed to be sly? And that they're, they're really like telling you like, no, this is a mess. What's happening here? They were, and the fact that she was kind of uh, answering him like she was Marilyn Monroe leads me to believe that maybe she's not all there either. And that the two of them seem like they might actually be kind of off in the same way. Yeah. They have these like Hollywood dreams, high aspirations. Neither one of them, like when you said that that Marilyn girl, we've all known girls like there and there's something a little off about them. I think it's because they seem like they should be a lot more, for lack of a better term, successful than they mm. are. Like, what are you doing? You're you're jogging on the beach. You have no money. You haven't landed anything. You're pretty enough that you should have. So mm. what's wrong? You know, and with this other guy, he's already working in this distribution company. He's clearly got the uh, fanaticism to know all of, that he needs to know to be in the business. So but you're also what I'll assume 24, 25 years old and you're living with aunt Stella. I don't know these people. It just, that right there told me, told me these two characters are not okay. <laughs> so no, that's a great point because for a woman who looks like Marilyn Monroe and talks like Olivia Newton, John, she should not be interested in Eric at all. And you're absolutely right. So, and I did, so I watch my movies with closed captioning on. I, it's, I can't not do it anymore. And so this movie actually, you benefit from that a lot because all of the voices that he does, if you don't like recognize or pick up it, the closed captioning is going to tell you who's, who he's impersonating. And then there's also, yeah, kind of under, under the, like under the radar dialogue happening here and there that actually really amps up what's mm. happening in the scene work. But one other thing, though, the other thing that I think the strongest thing that I forgot to mention was that when she doesn't know the answer to the first question, 
he responds to her pretty aggressively. He's he calls pissed. Stacey, he calls Stacy stupid at a point. Yeah. Uh, and then and but then Marilyn says, Oh, you hurt his feelings. Right. Yeah. But he, he's like pissed off at these people. Zero to sixty with your anger mm-hmm. is not a that's a red flag. That's totally. the worst red flag, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So good luck, girls. Well, she says, she says, can you drive me to work? And he <laughs> says, yes, but I'm on two wheels, not four. And they get on his Vespa and drive away. <laughs> Getting on a Vespa with a stranger takes me back to my 20s. Yeah. So they pull up. She passes out skates at a skating rink, which I think sounds like a really fun summer job. If I'm not if I'm being totally honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad job. Oh, no. Uh, and he, as she gets off, says, I'll see you in the movies. Referencing Hollywood and, you know, a movie line. And she says, yeah, OK. And she takes it as he's asking her on a date. Well, when's a good time? How about tonight? Meet me at eight. And she agrees to. And wow, he's got a date with this beautiful girl. So we're going to cut to the police station again. And Dr. Moriarty is sitting in the former drunk tank, now his office, it's been cleaned up and he's playing the harmonica and Roman, (laughs) can I just tell you how much I fucking hate when people play the harmonica? (laughs) I'll I'll give you that. It is, it is quite unnecessary. Blues Traveler is the only musician I'm going to get. And and Alanis Morissette are the only two musicians. I'm going to give a pass to the harmonica and everyone else can fuck right off. When I was in high school, there was this kid who played harmonica before choir class. I think his class before that was right next to the choir room. And so he was always the first person in the choir room. And we would walk in and every fucking day he was playing the harmonica poorly. Anyway, this guy's playing. And then he does a bump of Coke off of the web of his hand. And then he plays faster. <laughs> right. And, that, so I'm watching this going, wait, did he just really do that? Like yes, he did. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that, see, this is where I'm saying that this is like a little bit of a weird comic relief because he does it again. And Anne, our lady cop, comes down the stairs and is looking at him through the bars. And she's got this look of like, she's impressed with his harmonica skills. On her right. Face. Well, no, she saw him do blow lines and was like, I'm going to sleep with this guy. And well, like, the second what? time he does it's it, going- she- yeah no i know the second time he does it though she makes like a disapproved face and then he like looks up stops playing harmonica he's doing this whole like oh baby baby song while he's playing it it's really (laughs) honestly cringy and embarrassing for him but it works because he says hi Anne," and then we cut to a bed where they are fucking yeah (laughs) we just see rumpling yellow bed sheets and then Suddenly the sheets get pulled down and he's already holding a box of Ritz crackers and a bottle of wine, which leads me to believe that he was holding those things while they were having sex, which makes me just think of crumbs and wine stains all over those sheets. Yeah. Well, you know, you could look at it this way. The crumbs are also a good way to exfoliate before you get in the shower. So you're right. Yeah. Their backs are going to be really, really soft, baby soft. It's a hot mess, but I don't know what's going on with the police force, but clearly she thinks that it's okay to. They can blow lines in the back room. So. I guess it was Good the eighties. <laughs> they have a dumb dialogue about how the police chief is such a hard ass. And the scene goes literally nowhere, nowhere. 
That night, Eric is getting ready for his date and he's putting on this blue suit and he's got his hair slicked back and he's talking to Aunt Stella in his Cary Grant voice. And Stella is jealous. She's got this look on her face, right? And she says, who's the young lady? And he explains she's a very famous actress. It's Marilyn Monroe. He says Monroe in this film, which kind of drove me insane because I don't know anybody who says Marilyn Monroe. Right. Is that a thing? Well, he was giving that like old Hollywood dialect. The is, con- it the, is, it, is it the continental dialect, continental accent? Yeah. What bothered me the most was that he just wouldn't get out of character ever with ever. no serious answers ever. So I was like, I every time Aunt Stella like went off the rails, I was like, go, girl. He needs a spanking. Like he's annoying. For real. Um, <laughs> She says something like, if you're Cary Grant, I'm Greta Garbo. And he's about to walk out the door and then the music changes and there's like a shift in cinematography and it's like a kind of a stranger close up of him and he looks her way and he says, Aunt Stella, I'm going to need you to spot me some cash for the same rate of exchange as usual. And she like perks up in her chair and she puts (laughs) on this really creepy smile and she says, all right, but I want you back as soon as the movie's over. I want my back rub tonight. And it's so gross. It, it was super really gross. slimy out of nowhere. Uh, what? Where did this come from? Now, I mean, I have a theory of where this came from, but also when you're watching it, you're like, what? Yeah. So I am supposed to hate you. You are an asshole aunt. You know, I kept going back and forth with like, is she mad because she this kid sucks or I mean, she does. She suck too. Everybody sucks. She can suck and also be right that he needs to take better care of himself. (laughs) True. But then as soon as you need your, your, well, what we think is your, your nephew to be massaging your back in a very creepy way, then I don't know. I don't know who to believe anymore. Yeah. Listen, there's uh, giving her a back rub would be a nice thing to do if she didn't say it the way that she says it. (laughs) Yeah. Come right home. Get all horned up from your date and then come home to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hate it. Hate it. Yeah. He leaves. And we find out that Marilyn has actually gone on a date with someone else. Peter yeah. Horton. Uh, he looked familiar to me, but I didn't recognize him. He's on like CSI and um, he's he works. He works a lot. So anyway, he's her date and he's in this movie for about 30 seconds. And they're having a discussion. He's very clearly like convinced that he's got it in the bag and that he's going to bed her tonight. And she's just like not actually that interested. And dinner ends and she, you know, he says, why don't, we, why don't we go back to my place? And she says, can we get dessert? Meanwhile, we see poor Eric being stood up outside the place where they were supposed to meet. And I do feel a little, I feel sorry for him at this part because He's walking around Hollywood and comes to a movie theater and sees a blonde woman and runs up from behind and, oh, it's not her. And then another blonde woman and, oh, it's not her. And now, like, minutes have passed into hours and it's that awkward, sad moment where it's like, well, I'm all dressed up. Like, do I want to just go home to Aunt Stella? Like, he's just kind of wandering the streets and it's, it's, it's pretty sad. It was sad. I actually really did feel for him. But then there was another side of me that kicked in, which was like, oh, God, here we go. Now we're he's going to like women are going to be blamed for all of his bad behavior going forward because he was jilted by this pretty girl. Yeah. But 
we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Marilyn suddenly realizes, oh my God, I was supposed to meet this boy in whatever part of town hours ago. And she leaves. And this, I love her line here. The guy says, what, don't you like men? And she throws a napkin down and says, don't, don't, don't flatter fl- yourself. Don't flatter yourself. <laughs> Did that sound Australian? It had a tinge of Australian, but I think it was a little more Long Island. God but... damn it. All right. Well, I'm a very talented actor. I just can't do dialects I... to save my fucking life. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so she, she rushes. He's gone. He like tries to get his rocks off with a, a sex worker and she like denies him in a big way he offers her ten dollars and says why not me and she, she says ten dollars for what cat food <laughs> and she gets in the gets in a car with another john tells him i hope you freeze your nuts off he has returned home and watches a movie on his projector and he is watching the public enemy and and still <laughs> It's a, a shot of Aunt Stella backing up in her electric wheelchair into the elevator, and she is pissed. <laughs> like, the look on her face is so fucking funny. She gets to the top, and it's just kind of like, where the fuck have you been? I want my bathtub. And she goes off on him, and she starts yelling at him, and she's really hateful. Really, really mean. Um, Doesn't she enter the room with, uh, like, a POV shot where just a hand on the controls and it was very much like the opening to Halloween where I'll you're take like that yeah it was like oh wait is this is this who's coming to get you now yeah she's screaming at him she's yelling at him and then she with her cane hits his projector which falls to the ground and he gets really upset and the scene that's happening in the public enemy is the famous scene where the hitman is tying up the landlady with an electrical cord and then shoving her down the stairs. And this, I mean, that scene was super shocking when it came out. No one had ever seen anything like that, right? As all of this is happening, her electric chair has stopped working and won't budge. Mm. And he comes up behind her and he starts laughing creepily and maniacally and just pushes it a little bit. And it starts rolling and she's screaming, I can't stop it, I can't stop it. And then gets out the front door and she falls down the stairs and dies <laughs> and dies. And he stands at the top. It's like he's in his underwear. It's looking up at him and he's laughing. And then he just starts spouting movie facts about the public enemy and listing the cast. And oh, no, no, no. It's not the public enemy. It is. um Fuck the um kiss of death. Kiss of death. It's kiss of death. No, there was a lot of different movies and they he was constantly having these flashbacks. Yeah. And each, it, there was always a parallel to one of these famous movies to whatever his actions were. That I thought was the cleverest part of this whole film. And I wish it, there were more of it because it disappears for a while and then it comes back at the very end. Which actually, so, now that I say that out loud, I don't mind it. What was the movie that was playing? What was the movie that he was quoting when she died? Kiss of Death. Right? Kiss of Death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He goes in the house and so it's interesting because he didn't push her down the stairs, but he didn't stop her either. Right. right? He could have saved her and he doesn't. And he he's in character as he walks back in and then he gets to the mirror and he falls out of character and just like stares at himself. And it's like an incredible moment for him as an actor. 
crouches down in the corner of the bathroom and starts retching like he's going to throw up and just kind of falls down to the floor. Following the death of Stella, Aunt Stella, he gets all dressed up and goes to a movie. And I fucking love this shot because he's looking to his left and he's got a makeup brush in his hand. And then he turns his face to the camera and he's facing the camera now. And the left side of his face is completely done up like Bella Lugosi Dracula as though it is a black and white film. And it looks incredible. Like this makeup job is fucking great. Yeah, it's like the the poster image that we all yes. relate to this to this movie. Right. The half and half for sure. Which is clearly symbolic of his personality. Yeah. Or at least his personality up to that point, which is now going to probably be fully taken over. Well, so you are a makeup artist. You have been a makeup artist. I have been a makeup artist. I think we both know that no one would do up half of their face and then go back and do the other half. <laughs> that was the first thing that I'm thinking of, because then it, the, it's a hard cut to his full face painted in the in the theater audience. But I get it. Well, well I'll, take, I'll give him that liberty of half and half. But like after half and half, he faces the camera. He then turns his face all the way to the right. And then we get the Dracula side of his face. And it's pretty fucking cool. We cut to a movie theater. And while he is entirely black and white, his lips are bright red, which is a great image. He's surrounded by punks and kind of like some goth kids. And it's clearly the midnight movie, which I wish was still a thing. It drives me insane that we live in New York City. And we don't have. And this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Like I used to sneak out when I was in high school and go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I know that that's a thing that still happens in New York like once a month. And I don't think that it's high schoolers sneaking out to do it. I think that mm-hmm. it's people our age. We also don't really have great. like the dollar theaters anymore. We don't have the places that would cultivate these sorts of social gatherings. Also, sort social gatherings. That was my first job. Really? My first job was a dollar movie theater. Yeah. Super, sa- super saver cinemas in Phoenix, Arizona. We had like blue track lighting down the hallway. God, it was such a cool place. Used to bring that, movie posters home all the time. See, we need, we need, we need our lives to have kind of that kind of stuff. The audience in that shot, I thought it was going to be a Rocky Horror show, but then it it's very like clearly it, yeah. Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, that's you can recognize that when audio. he's really into it. Specifically, the scene where the little girl, as a zombie, kills her mother because he has just killed Stella. I love. There's a scene where two punks, like one of them, says, "Doesn't this make <laughs> you sick?" And he's like, "Shh." instantly which is me in a movie theater i <laughs> fucking hate when people talk during a movie it drives me insane especially like now everyone's on their phones it, it's it's quite all right that's not what we're here to talk about you are you are correct so but yes he leaves the movie dressed as dracula uh marilyn is drunk in her house in her apartment uh just rolling around the floor drinking wine giggling as someone does <laughs> she's practicing her marilyn practicing her marilyn impression yeah gets in the shower we do see titties and then it's when she turns on the shower it's clearly a psycho reference you get the shot up at the shower head as the water turns on and we know what movie we're suddenly in yeah and eric sneaks in to her house and we get the slow approach to the shower just like in psycho curtain is pulled she screams he is holding a sharp object and he's he says, I just wanted your autograph and drops a quill pen, which then le- leaks black ink down the drain, just like black and white psycho. Right. This does not work at all for me. 
the whole scene is awful. Oh my god. Is awful and it feels really heavy-handed. I know yes. what they were trying to do, but it didn't work. I, also, I, how does he know where she lives? I don't know. I just don't know. She ditched she ditched him at yeah. the theaters. I think we see her run back and can't find him at some point, but he clearly doesn't know where she lives. No. Yet he shows up at her house and is able to get into her apartment and crawl into her bathroom. So that the whole thing, I was like, I was taken out of this moment that should have just, I should have just been able to go with it and be like, ah, clever. It's going to be scary. No, I was like, why is he here? Right. Yeah. Whatever. So yeah, we've got the, we've got the psycho reference. They kind of had to do that in this film at some point. And again, just mentioning that like, this wasn't a time when people, when movies were referencing movies. Right. Like they do today, right? True. So it comes across a sex worker from earlier, and she's getting into, I think, her car, perhaps? It looked like a fucking killer car. Red yeah. Mustang or she's something making, like that. She's making great money. She is doing yeah. just fine for herself. <laughs> she is. This is a great scene, actually. It I is. Liked, I liked this scene a lot. Do you want to describe it? Well, so she's walking up to the car. And then she hears this creepy Dracula voice and he comes out of the shadows to approach her. She clearly doesn't recognize him at first that this is the same guy she told off. But the way that he comes at her like Dracula as Bella Lugosi, I'm assuming mm-hmm. the, the, what he was what he was doing. It was actually really clever. He was intimidating without being like, hey, I'm going to kill you. I don't even know if that's what he was intending to do. I think that's why I like this scene is because it seemed like for once he was getting carried away. He was getting drunk with power of like, I can intimidate these people that shit on me. And she seemed like, okay, fuck, I'm in this parking lot and this like creepo in a costume is like kind of hovering and not letting me in my car. Clearly problem. Any woman is going to be like, I need to get the fuck out of here. She starts running And the way he chases her is like he's clearly playing with her. He's not trying to catch her. He's always like staying behind her and enjoying this. And she runs down an alleyway, which was very reminiscent of the the Nightmare on Elm Street scene in the first one. Totally. Yeah. He's chasing her down the alley and the arms extend. And so it was it, it was a very effective scene. And it felt good because. It felt like a very good portrayal of where he was as a character developing and starting to be like his bad sides coming out. But he still didn't seem like he was ready to tear people apart until (laughs) until. Well, so I do like he opens his creepiness by whispering like off camera where she can't see him. Ah, the creatures of the night, what sweet sounds they make, quoting Dracula, referring to her as a creature of the night because she's a sex worker, chases her and then she trips and falls and lands on a white picket fence, which impales her neck. Yeah. She's dead instantly. And it's a decent looking makeup. He leans down and it's a great, really cool shot because he is painted black and white. And except for his lips, there is a white picket fence behind him and it looks like a black and white film. And I think it's a really cool, deliberate choice to make this moment look as though he is in a black and white movie, except for his red lip. He touches where the wood is sticking out of her neck, and that's when the makeup no longer looks good. You can tell that it's just stuck to her neck. I really wish that they had been more careful about that, but that's Mm. me being picky. Takes the blood and puts it in his mouth and licks it, and then just 
slowly brings his face down to her neck and starts drinking her blood. And it's kind of a moment where you're like, he's not gonna, he's not, he's not gonna do, he's not. Oh shit, he's gonna drink her blood. And then he stands up and he's clearly enjoyed it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, uh, he's off the rails now. Here we go. Yeah. I feel like even though he's killed his aunt, this is where we've now discovered that the dude is bonkers and is a threat. Because I I know he didn't push the wheelchair down the stairs, but didn't he push her to the stairs? He pushed her and, to the stairs and then she stops and then like and then falls. So he kind of set it up. Like yeah. he knew what he was doing, but in this case, he also didn't really kill her, but He's also drinking her blood and smiling after he's watched somebody die. So we now know that he is not okay. Not okay at all. Next day, Richie and his uh, sidekick are reading the paper and apparently someone dressed as Dracula murdered somebody, which, all right, if Eric didn't know where Marilyn lives, how did the press know that someone dressed as Dracula murdered a sex worker when there was nobody around to see it? absolutely whatever <laughs> yeah uh eric says no i didn't hear anything about that sure i was at the movie but there were lots of people dressed as dracula and then stomps away and then stomps away angrily yeah eric calls the guys out on the bet and how they owe him money and they're like fuck off like we don't we're not doing that they yeah. the the boys go to a boardwalk i think this was filmed at santa monica boardwalk which is a place that we used to vacation every summer I, that sounds like we were a rich family we were not they were business trips for my dad that were expensive <laughs> um and uh so they're playing like midway uh you know games and like throwing baseballs at cans and stuff like that and um can't really get any turn a corner we see it's a really i love this i love this shot so much we hear kind of a jingly sound and then through like a foggy backlight, we see the silhouette of a cowboy approach. And the boy, Richie, and his goon are, are like, who the hell is this? What is it, Halloween? And as the cowboy approaches closer, he is also black and white, head to toe, wearing like this bizarre mask and doing a Hopalong Cassidy impression. It was it was really well done, and it was creepy because it kind of had this. I I couldn't tell what the face was at first. Yeah, but it was it was clearly it was clearly a face. I could, but it was it was creepy and just and it comes out of the smoke. Yeah, uh, really well done, and he doesn't really say much at first, so they're playing along with him, right? He takes a pistol, the same pistol, out of a holster and puts it on the ground and kicks it toward them. And Richie picks it up and he says, oh, you want to go around? And he tucks it into his jeans. Eric says, draw! And pulls the gun out. And Richie doesn't do anything because he doesn't understand what is about to happen to him. Gets a gunshot fired at his feet and suddenly shit gets real. Hey man, hey, what's wrong? Don't do anything. And his goon runs off and says, he's fucking crazy. And Richie elects to stay and try to right. talk some sense into this guy, it makes no sense at all. But Mickey Rourke makes it work for me. <laughs> yeah, sort of. It's all right. He gets there. He's he, told- uh, wait. Sorry. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. So the, what's the other guy's name? I don't remember. I'm just calling him his goon. Okay. So goons left the scene and it's, yeah. and it's just Ricky left there going like, what are you, why are you doing this? Well, like he's, sh- Seems like he should have run, but it also seems like he's the kind of guy that would have charged at him. But either way, he stuck around to get a few bullets. So 
Yeah. That was it. Well, he realizes it's Eric right before he gets shot in the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he yeah, he tells it. him like, "Oh yeah, is this?" He says something that like calls him by name, and so he knows it's him. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I like the way that he actually like ended this. This scene was pretty effective for me. Um, the fact that the other goon escapes means that okay, now you've got witnesses. So shit's about to get real. And I it doesn't it just go like from here on out, they're like, now we know who did it. Like the cops know who did it? You mean? Yeah. Or we uh, I can't remember if it was right here. Cops are putting it together a little bit, like a little bit after this. So this was actually the the people who own the rights for Hopalong Cassidy are the ones who took the director to court because of the way that they were uh depicting the character. So there are not um like interspersed shots from that film. I don't know if they were ever intended to be or not. Like during the Dracula sequence, we don't see Bella Lugosi. We see Christopher Lee Dracula because Universal flat out said no to letting them use that. I don't know mm. how they got away with the creature from the Black Lagoon. But so he's dressed as Bella Lugosi, but we're seeing clips from horror of Dracula starring Christopher Lee. It works. Nice. I guess. I'm not gonna ask questions. Sure. Uh, so the back to our stupid B plot of the police. They're putting together that these murders seem connected. I think it's a well-acted scene, uh, maybe for both of them, that just doesn't need to be in the movie at all. Yeah, this is this is where the everything takes a turn for me, like in how I feel about the film. Because mm. the the so Doctor Doctor Jerry Moriarty mm. is the one that is supposed to be like. No, there, you know, he's got problems. He's not a terrible guy. Like he's just had terrible things. We need to help him. Or, you know, he's he's trying to bring in this like sympathetic new angle to this that honestly like was far too advanced for that era. This I'll get into later, but I appreciate what they were trying to do. And then you've got the asshole cop that's like, no, we're dealing with a criminal. Don't give me this bullshit. It doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is, is like we haven't established enough backstory of any of these people for this to really matter. The fact of the matter is if somebody's just gone around and like if you have one person dressed as Dracula kill somebody and then you've got another person dressed as a cowboy that's killed somebody. Clearly, this isn't just this is like something that was premeditated right you can't treat it like well let's just like you know coddle this person and so it just felt really unnecessary not well thought out and a distraction from the real story which is we should have cut to marilyn in her home going how did that psycho find out where i live she never brings it up again you would think there's a scene between her and stacy where she's like stacy You'll never guess what just happened to me. <laughs> and then Stacy's like, you stupid bitch. I told you don't drive off with this stranger who's clearly going zero to 60 with his anger issues. Yeah. yeah. This, missed, that's missed what needed. <laughs> so, yes. Absolute missed opportunity there. All right. So Eric is starting to really, really, really disconnect from reality. He is hitchhiking along the side of the road in somewhere in Hollywood and gets picked up. Uh, in a really cool old school convertible by what turns out to be a film producer. And Eric pitches a movie to him called uh, Alabama and the 40 Thieves, which is actually a pretty good title. I would totally yeah. watch that movie. Yeah. Or, th- or that porn. And- yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you. That now I now I see it. Well, when he recognizes the producer, he says, "Yeah, didn't you make that movie the rip the big rip off?" Or it's like a a total jab at film execs, which or film producers, which I think is pretty funny and, and foreshadowing uh, and foreshadowing because this producer says well hey why don't we work together i would totally make that movie why don't you call me sometime and eric or sweet misled eric believes him gets out of his car rushes home to tell aunt fucking stella in her urn <laughs> <laughs> he went from the last time we saw aunt, aunt stella's urn to like where he put a cigarette out in it to now telling her Everything's gonna be fine. We're We've made need, it. We've, We've made, made it. it. We're yeah. not gonna. We're not gonna need anything. We're gonna be so rich. This producer, Mr. Bialy, is gonna make my movie. Well, I mean, to be fair, I would be a little excited too. But can we back up and say why did that guy in that car pick up a hitchhiker? I don't know. I think uh, did Eric know that he would be driving? Like he just happened to get into a car. With a guy and oh yeah, you're a producer. It's it's way too convenient. It was weird. Way too convenient. I wish I even knew what kind of car that was to say what you know. Like I think if you understood what kind of car that was, you'd realize like you're not gonna let just anybody touch that. No, especially some kid in like a dirty leather jacket where like the sleeve is coming off. It's got holes in it. This guy clearly doesn't shower much. And come sit in my classic car as we drive through the neighborhood. He, he shares like... a joint with him. The The producer <laughs> yeah. shares a joint with him. What? This doesn't happen. Well, I mean, I guess that's kind of the way the biggest projects get started. But sure, it's getting into the car that I don't buy. Eric ends up at work and his boss is like, where the fuck have you been? I'm sick of your shit. I'm so over it. And Eric says... I'm going to be big. I just sold a screenplay. I don't need your shit anymore. And they get into a screaming match and it ends with his boss, like while he's chewing on a sandwich, also screaming, it's out with you. I'm like, Eric like kicks the Vespa off, like to the ground, like on its side. And he's like, Oh, you're lucky. I'm not down there. You rascal. And he says, I'm going to get the cops called on you. Um, and then, you know, spits food out of his mouth and then immediately reaches for his heart pills. That night, we have, I think this is maybe my favorite kill scene in the movie. For It was sure. the, this really was the best. It's it so was great well shot. Scene. It looks great. We're in the dark, dark warehouse. And the, uh, the boss is like, he hears noises. And it's cool. There's a moment where he's standing with his back against the wall. And there's a movie, a poster for the movie Halloween behind him. And the hand of a mummy reaches through the wall and strangles him. He starts running through these rows of film canisters and they're just like reflecting the the night work lights above him in a really beautiful, like silvery, glittery way. I think it's really pretty in a macabre sort of way. And down the rows of these film canisters, we see a mummy approaching, stumbling toward him. And Eric has chosen another film idol to idolize and dress up as. It looked great. It It was seriously good. The mummy looked fantastic. And the way he was moving was, I I remember feeling like, okay, yeah, I'm not terrified for this boss because he clearly is like one step away from dying anyway. Mm -hmm. But the, the whole scene was done really well. 
it was edited really well. So the pacing was what it worked. And he just was like creeping up on him in a way that was like really effective. So A plus yeah. to this. And he doesn't, this is another one where he doesn't kill the person. His boss has a heart attack and can't get his pills. <laughs> and then he stands over him laughing. Which yeah. Was that was good. Creepy fucking laugh. And that's the end of Mr. Burger. Eric, there's a really bizarre scene. Cut to him in his bedroom, grabbing his crotch and jerking off to Maryland. So we see Eric laying down in bed, looking up at, he has a poster of Marilyn Monroe on his ceiling. And there's like a tonal shift in the film. It feels voyeuristic. It's kind of like from like the base of his body, like down, like where his feet are sh- uh, shooting toward where the headboard of his head of his bed would be. And he reaches down and starts playing with himself. And it it's a surprisingly graphic crotch grab. Oh yeah, and it doesn't cut away either. It doesn't cut away at all. He is like he starts out grabbing his crotch from the outside of his underwear and then he slips it in and then we just cut to images of Marilyn Monroe around the room and above him we see him imagine Marilyn O'Connor as Marilyn Monroe. He starts calling her like bitch, fucking bitch and while he's masturbating to the thought of Marilyn Monroe slash this Marilyn girl that he has met. It is one of the most uncomfortable masturbation scenes I think I've ever witnessed in any movie of all time ever. Yes. Besides perhaps The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think this one's worse. And it just, um, you know what? It is because she has a, she has an excuse. She's possessed by a demon. <laughs> right. He is it's it's another moment where if you if you think you're going to feel sorry for him, suddenly you don't. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Now you're calling her a bitch. Mm -hmm. Now. Now you're like. And like (sighs) while he's pleasuring himself to the thought of her calling her a bitch. So there's violence against her behind all of this. I think anyone watching this who wasn't around for that time, that era, I think it's easy to be like, Oh, he's just crazy. And he's, he's an asshole and he's going to get it in the end. But having been lived through the era that this came out in, I realized that that was actually not considered the worst thing to be Mm -hmm. is a a woman hating guy. Like it was okay. Women were bitches. Like that was, they're the reason that a lot of guys went crazy. So that's that's like the the accepted mentality at the time. And that's why I hate it even more, you know? So it's harder for me to just look at this uh, without then having to analyze the society as a whole. So- I mean, I don't think that it's showcasing it in a way that's making it okay for him to do this. I hear what you're saying and I totally agree with it. No, but it's harder. It mean, I mean, it's harder for me to accept this character as somebody mm. that I want to go on a ride with. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm he... now counting down the scenes till you die. After he comes, he immediately apologizes to Marilyn and says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And cries. Cool. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. Well, I'm so glad we shared that intimate moment with him. It was cool. It was great. I could have gone without it. Not gonna yeah. lie. It's see, and then that's like kind of the Henry's portrait of a serial killer moment where it gets too real. Like you're living in this weird fantasy film. Like you know, 
fantasy world of this character and then suddenly that shit happens right so he's watching some tv and he sees an interview with this producer bialy talking to a interview woman on tv who asks him about his next project and he says oh well i've got this great idea for i found my next screenplay it's called alabama and the 40 thieves and eric gets really excited and starts smiling and then the producer mentions kind of aloofly that yeah it's a great idea i can't believe i came up with this idea (laughs) i do love he's about to keep talking about the movie and the interviewer is like well okay (laughs) thanks so much for coming (laughs) and that's the end of their talk eric is like incredibly excited the producer off camera tells the woman yeah it's my birthday let's do lunch later blah 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 eric looks up the phone number for this producer and gets him on the phone and the producer says, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. I don't know. I don't who you give are. rides to strangers. I don't give rides to strangers. And I certainly never accept outside screenplays. So I wish I could help you, but I can't. And hangs up on him. And this causes Eric to crouch down in the corner of the room and rock back and forth. <laughs> like Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, turning that lamp lamp on and off and on and off. <laughs> it's a new level of unhinged that yes. we've now reached. I have to say, I really, I love watching movies about people's descents into madness. I, sure. As an actor, it is like a dream to portray a character like this. I can see that. Yeah. You could, you could see me portraying a character like this? I can, yeah. All right. That's good. Let's make that movie. Okay. I just, I guess uh, this is another example of where I keep, it goes back and forth. I'm like, okay, well, I feel for him in this case. Mm -hmm. He was totally done wrong. Guy played him dirty, stole his idea. Who wouldn't be devastated? Yeah. And I get that, but also. uh, But then what he does to like avenge himself (laughs) is not acceptable. And that's where I think that the movie succeeds in. There is never, you know, you don't leave this movie thinking, wow, good for him. He really you know, stood up for himself and, and no, like he does despicable things all throughout. And the despicable had this, thing- Had this happened at the beginning of the film in some way, then it would like, there's a way to rearrange this movie so that like all of these like things that come and blows to him could maybe explain why he's starting to shut down and why he's starting to live in a fantasy world and why he's starting to like, you know, all these things can- actually like make more sense but instead they're thrown in there where it's like oh no but we're supposed to be feeling empathy for this guy it's like i haven't felt empathy since scene one so why are you and i almost i do think it would have worked better if this happened earlier and he can still come back and get his vengeance for this toward the end of the film like he does but right if if he starts this movie already kicked in the gut and fallen to the ground over this situation happening then his descent into madness is, but then again, like I just said, I I also just really like that. Even with this happening, I can't justify liking him. I don't know. So he ends up somehow getting his hands on a Packard car, and dressing as Cody Jarrett, which was James Cagney's character in White Heat. And he's gotten a Tommy gun somehow. I don't know where, he, like, where did he get this car? Where did he get this Tommy gun? Where did he get this suit? Whatever. It's the Whatever. producer. Producer is like, 
getting his haircut. I actually kind of love that he's getting his haircut and he's surrounded by a bunch of people who I'm assuming work for him. They're giving him birthday cards. Someone gives him a pair of shoes and he says, oh, Gucci, I love them. Oh, wrong size. Well, that's all right. I'll exchange them. (laughs) They're all just kind of like kissing his ass while he's getting his haircut in this gorgeous barbershop slash salon with mirrors and chandeliers. Great, great cinematography moment. Mm Mm-hmm. The way they establish, like, I, you very rarely will see a shot like this. It's from above. Mm-hmm. It's at a top angle looking down. So you're seeing the guy in the chair who's being pampered by the stylist. You see the, the people that are kind of acting as his audience around him. And then in this other weird, very 80s designed mirror, you see the front door open and Eric walk in in his costume. So you've actually got all these angles that normally an editor would be cutting to all of these things, but you get it all in one very creative shot. And an overhead shot like that is not done very often. It was awesome. I oh, was very, true. I was really impressed with this moment. There's another one I noticed later on. We'll talk about it when we get to it. Eric, who is now going by Cody Jarrett, walks into the room with his Tommy gun, cool, calm, collected, and talking like James fucking Cagney. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he's he's saying, you don't remember me, but uh, I'll get my revenge or whatever. And no one believes him. And actually, the producer thinks that it's like he's like a singing telegram for his birthday. Like, hey, who put you up to this? Was it you? And no one in the room knows what the hell is going on. And he so Eric uh, opens fire and there's glass exploding everywhere. And all of these people except the producer because he's stuck in the barber chair. Everyone else escapes. Eric reveals to the producer doesn't recognize him. And that is a little bit of a tragedy of this situation in that this was such a big deal to Eric, right? Like, holy shit, my movie idea is going to get picked up. And then this guy stole it from him and doesn't even remember him. Right. Still doesn't justify him opening fire with a Tommy gun on him. It's a great shot. He's like, it's unsettling because the producer spins around in the barber chair in a very it just feels like a natural way you know it was it was a very effective kill scene actually like shooting him and having the the chair spin was awesome the producer before he gets shot says i can help you out like he's trying to buy his way out of this but it doesn't work and on his way out there's a parakeet in a cage and it's like singing and he like stops and looks at the parakeet and uh, in his cagney voice says like oh you got a sweet little voice there why don't you come down (laughs) to the club and i'll help you out that didn't sound like James Cagney. I promise I'm a good actor. <laughs> it was close. I thought it was pretty good. All right. I thought it was good. James Cagney actually had a really big influence on me wanting to be an actor because I saw him in Yankee Doodle Dandy and he was like a song and dance man. And then I saw him in White Heat and I was like, this man's fucking terrifying. Oh, that's what acting is. And look at me now. Oh, well, then we need we need to get you. Uh, You need to you need to get a better impression of him then. Or, you know, just come up with my own singing and dancing horror movie to star in. There you go. Singing and dancing horror movie. Okay. Hmm. To be continued. (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Episode two of Rick Retreat and Roman. So Marilyn and Stacy are shopping on the boardwalk. I love Marilyn has this comment of like, God, the people around here. God, the people Uh, around here. Brian did. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Was there that better? Go. Great. That was right. really good. I'm that was there. a good one. I'm yeah. getting there. And <laughs> my listeners are screaming right now. Please stop. <laughs> and they see a poster for, hey, looking for a Marilyn Monroe 
lookalike show up at this undisclosed address tonight. <laughs> and Marilyn says, hey, Stacy, you've got a car. Drive me. And Stacy says, I would never let you go to this alone. I will drive you and I'm going to go in with you and make sure everything's OK. So she does. Well, it turns out this has all been a very elaborate ruse because I guess it was Eric who said, put this poster out specifically to lure her. They arrive at this photography studio and go inside and it's actually really legit. It's a nice, like well-decorated, very spacious photography studio office. And Stacy just says, you're going to be fine. And pieces out, like, doesn't <laughs> yeah. stick around to meet anybody, doesn't stay with her friend until she finds out who this man is who wants to photograph a Marilyn Monroe lookalike. She just goes. Marilyn is let into a room the door like opens by itself with like an electric buzzer, which I'm assuming was really impressive in 1980 and finds Eric dressed as Laurence Olivier in the movie, the Prince and the Showgirl. And he's got this Hungarian accent and he's reenacting the film. And he says, you know, tonight we will recreate the classic <laughs> movie. And uh, she agrees to it. And she gets dressed up in the most stunning Marilyn Monroe, like white gown with the updo and the, the diamond. I mean, she looks hauntingly like Marilyn Monroe. It's bizarre. I, I mean, and she does such a good Marilyn. I wish she had had the opportunity to actually play her in like a Marilyn biopic. I thought that it would have been great if they actually had used her doing this a little bit more like uh, like a sort of like a there was no real pushback from her in in the the last act of this movie. Not at it all. would have been cool if like she sort of like he's clearly losing his mind. I would have put a segment in there almost like she's her Marilyn character is now coming out and kind of taunting him or teasing him or luring him or something and made that a bigger presence you know yes. but this scene that you're talking about with all the white background where they're mm -hmm. dancing together was phenomenal it's yes. gorgeous it's another scene of a, a an up an, a, a down shot that's from an angle and it feels it um it feels a little voyeuristic. It feels like at that angle, you're watching this happen and they don't like, you're just, you're, you're there. You're observing this. You're seeing this from a weird angle. Yeah, it was, it was great. Also, I think that's supposed to be imaginary, right? What is? The, this whole scene. They weren't actually there. They were in a studio. So it was almost, almost like a dream sequence. Oh, I see. Cause it is, it's, um, well, I know, I think it's, I think it's set up for the photo shoot. Oh, really? That was because she's dressed. She's still dressed in that dress in the gown later, like in the final scene. I thought that this was now in his head. I thought we were looking at because they went from his photo studio to this big palace looking place. Uh, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I thought that we're he's now in his head like he's got his girl. They've got he's in his alter egos and in his world. It's perfect. Mm, I'm going to say they're dancing amongst the set for the photo shoot. Listen, okay. I don't know where he got access to this photo studio. I don't know where he got these costumes. Yeah, he's Not borrowing a... money from Aunt Stella to take her to the movies. Well, but you know what? We, you know what? Oh, 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 it all makes sense oh. because his boss yelled at him before he got killed. Aren't you taking money from your 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 aunt's insurance like claim after she died? So maybe that that must be where oh. he's getting all this money. Okay. Yeah. 
That's all right. it. All right. He's spending it all on making his movie come to life. All right. I'll retract. I'll retract. Okay. That's good. We cut to Moriarty and Officer Anne in a car. Anne remarks something like, oh, man, there's so much traffic everywhere. And there is not. There is not another car on the street <laughs> at all. Now, they start relaying information to each other where the police, uh, uh, I'm sorry, where Moriarty says uh, something like, well, hey, so I found this out. Cody Jarrett was James Cagney's character's name in White Heat. It's gotta be this kid whose aunt died. The Putting the pieces together to tie it all to Eric is very poorly like constructed. Terrible, it was terrible. Awful. And then divulges, well, hey, you're never gonna guess what I found out. Aunt Stella was not his aunt, but his mother. Dun, dun, dun. And it's a throwaway line that adds nothing to the story whatsoever. Moriarty says, oh, the poor sucker. He never stood a chance. And that's it. Right. And it does. Like, why did Aunt Stella go through this elaborate? Um, I think Anne says something like it would have a scandal would have been made if she had. It makes no sense. I, I know I have a feeling I know why they were doing this, but it is a terrible decision. What it, is your feeling? I feel like it's a poor man's version of explaining this, uh, the struggles of being a boy, of being a man, and like yeah. what the, you know, the pitfalls that come with society. Like that's the, that's what they kept really trying to hammer home yeah. whenever we were in the police scenes. Yeah. And it just fails miserably because that's not really how it works at all. The incel nature, like, like, not even lying under the surface, broadly sprawled across the bed, masturbating angrily at Marilyn Monroe in this movie, does it a real disservice because I think with some real alterations, this could have worked. And this ending, unfortunately, really starts to unravel quickly. Moriarty pulls up, gets busts into the studio, busts down the door. Eric has his gun. Now he shoots Moriarty in the leg, <laughs> and Anne pulls out a gun to shoot Eric and Moriarty says, no, don't shoot him. And Eric backs away and gets away. Eric feeds Marilyn pills out of a pillbox, like white pills. Now, obviously, Marilyn Monroe allegedly died of a drug overdose. So this is what he's doing to her. He also says the phrase, wake up, it's over, which, if I'm not mistaken, is what the prince says to her at the end of The Prince and the Showgirl where he's like, I'm a prince. I got to go back. I, I can't. I'm not going to fucking love you. You know, they run away. Marilyn is this is where the weird disco beat music starts in. She's like stumbling down the streets of Hollywood in this gorgeous white Marilyn Monroe gown. And he's like just pacing behind her. Very Michael following Laurie at the end of Halloween. And they find themselves at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. <laughs> Moriarty and Anne jump into the police car. Somehow they catch wind that Eric and Marilyn are now at the theater and Anne says, don't worry, I know a shortcut. And her shortcut is driving through a gas station parking lot, crashing through a pyramid of oil cans that have no business being in the middle of a gas station parking lot. <laughs> and then that's the end of her shortcut. Right. And I can't tell if it's supposed to be funny and not or if they really thought that that was going to be a great action sequence to include. I don't know either. I couldn't I couldn't tell. Especially since it was, like you said earlier, there was no traffic, there was no pedestrians, there was no obstacle. She just seems like a terrible driver. Really? There and, was no reason to go through any of that. And the gas station attendants are just silly gooses for setting up all those oil cans in the middle of their parking lot. 
We get to the theater. They have called backup. There's cops everywhere. Eric and Marilyn make it inside of the auditorium, and it's gorgeous. It. I actually find it very impressive that they filmed it at the theater and inside the theater. So I've been to Grauman's. I've never been inside of Grauman's. So look, like just the scale and scope of this gorgeous space is incredible. And it's a great shot of them running down the aisle toward the screen. Her in her white dress that's flowing behind. He's kind of dragging her now because she's drugged. Moriarty busts in. He has him. They could shoot him, right? Anne is about to. And then Moriarty says, no, don't do it. And lowers her gun. And he's got his fucking hippy dippy. Like he could, he could bust a kneecap. He could shoot him in the kneecap and end all of this. But he doesn't. Nope. Uh, and he's like, I can help you, Eric. I can help you. Just, just let me. And, and Eric says, who's Eric? <laughs> and they run up the stairs to the roof of the theater. So now we have Eric and Anne on the roof of the theater, looking down over a crowd of people and a bunch of cops with guns. The chief uh, is, informs them, don't shoot him unless he shoots. One trigger happy cop actually does fire his gun. The chief blows up on him. Moriarty's like, please, we can help you, blah, 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 blah. Marilyn, in a moment of, I, I really try to rack my brain of like uh, around how and why she does this, but he gives her more pills. He gives himself pills. And he's like, we'll be together forever. We'll be together forever. And she is, instead of like trying to get away from him, and maybe it's the drugs, maybe it's because she's quirky and underdeveloped. She's like, you don't need any of this. Come with me. Let's be together. And he shoves her into the stairwell and closes the door and locks it. I don't know if that door would lock from the outside on top of a roof. Right. No, it wouldn't. It would not. But, yeah. He, we'll just we'll just pretend that it could. Well, that's the last that we see of Marilyn, which also really upsets me. I assume she'll be okay. I hope she gets a movie deal out of this. Right. I kept thinking they're totally going to interview her left and right now because, yeah. you know. And unfortunately, she's fucked up out of her mind. I hope she doesn't know D. I'm sure she gets the help that she needs. And she's uh, going to be she's going to be fine. She's, she's going to be just fine. He's she's pretty. She's pretty. He stumbles over the edge and he looks over and he starts reciting James Cagney's speech at the end of White Heat. And it's we're getting flashbacks from that film interjected with this scene. Cagney's giving his speech of I made it to the top ma right before because at the end of White Heat, he climbs like a gas tower and the cops are firing at him. And he like he shoots one of his own men at one point to prove a point. And as he's getting shot to death by the cops, he lights a match and uh explodes the tower and his final words are uh something like look ma top of the world top of the world he gets shot at one point and falls down and then stands back up it's a drawn out scene yeah he was shot he was shot like three different times multiple yeah. times and it some of takes them. because i was like about five minutes late meeting you for this recording because the ending of this movie is five minutes too long <laughs> yeah oh absolutely he falls off the theater and it fades away from him but we don't see him hit the ground or anything. And then it fades to his bedroom and it just pans the walls, showing all of his icons and movie posters and a very melodramatic, ridiculous song plays called Heroes, written by Craig Safan, so the music music director, and it's sung by Carol Connors. Okay. They were true. All 
it's a good one. Um, <laughs> can I just say of all of all of the things that irritate me about this movie, why didn't it end with a fade to black? Thank you. It doesn't. <laughs> what? It was a hard cut. He falls off the building, and then it's essentially a hard cut to credits. Like, yeah. You missed the anyway. This last act is so uninteresting to me. Yes. It is so it's a complete failure in in my eyes. It 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 really falls apart. Yeah, the last act drives me crazy. Just at this point, I know that you have to just suspend logic for a lot of this stuff when it comes to like why would you be doing that? Okay? That's also a very common thing for a lot of early 80s films too. But in this case, I think they really push the the boundaries with it cuz it's again, like Okay, I could see how maybe the Marilyn character, like I said, is a little off. But then why is she just swallowing pills that he's putting in? She's willingly taking these things. I don't understand that. He wasn't even, okay, he was like dragging her along. But it's not like he was hitting her and like grabbing her and forcing her. He was just, she was going with him. Yeah. How am I supposed to feel like this is some sort of state of urgency? Like she's clearly not being kidnapped. They're now just like a you know a a duo i i it was so confusing every character in this movie flip-flops back and forth with intentions or at least it seems so well it's like i said before the actress playing marilyn i think is the only reason that the character worked at all because yeah she's not given anything really to do in the entire movie except for exist for eric to be a temptation for him and it is this actress who made a very uninteresting frankly dumb character like dumb in the idea of a Marilyn Monroe lookalike actually work right and then she's like really sad and trying to get him to not kill himself or jump off the build like she seems to really like him now wait a second honey isn't this the same one that just like came in and seemed like he was going to kill you in your shower and you never questioned that I don't understand I just I don't know, don't I, don't know that she, I don't know that she recognized him Come. when he came into the shower he was wearing face paint. He wasn't wearing a mask. Like, I don't know. Okay, fine. Let's just say she didn't get him. I'll, uh, she didn't recognize him. I'll give her that. But then she shows up at the the modeling session, that this, the fake modeling job for her. And she's never like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm so sorry I didn't show up. I ditched you at the movies at the beginning of this. Remember the whole thing that set him off? Like, there's no discussion of that. Nothing. All of this could have been, this whole movie probably could have been resolved with somebody just being communicating better, which feels like, what is this? Like a horror version of Three's Company? Like, it just feels really, uh, really annoying. It's it's like, (laughs) instead of a a comedy of errors, it's like a, like a horror movie of errors. Like nobody, nobody knows the truth of what's happening. He doesn't even know who his mom is. He never finds out that his Aunt Stella was his mom. Well, all right, Roman. So, what, like, what is your kind of wrap up feeling about this movie? I'll ask you if you liked it in a minute, but like, let's let's kind of talk about our, you know, our final thoughts on this. I feel like this is a really messy film. It was written by somebody that probably had a good idea if it had stayed small. 
And the mm-hmm. more they tried to develop it, the more they weren't equipped to go there. Yeah. It was a lot of like, you're throwing too many things in the pot here. And I guess it's not fair for me to say who did this because who knows, like a lot of times people do stuff and then like other hands come into play and they're like, we need more action here. We need this. You know, where's the big finale? Just like with Elm Street too. Where's the big finale where the guy saves the girl or whatever, you know, we need to have the, the, the tropes come in and who knows, but all I know is it doesn't work. It's a big mess. The ending seems cliche. It also isn't believable. So my takeaway is this movie works really well as a reflection of the time. More so than something that made me feel scared. Sure. So it's a nice little time capsule. On Rick or Treat Horrorcast, there's a rating system. A movie is either a trick, which means it's okay, or it's a treat, which means you loved it, or it's a smell my feet, which means it sucked. Mm. What would you call Fade to Black? I would actually call it a treat because I am actually, as much as I've been tearing this movie apart, it is fun. It has a lot of great elements. If you could just turn your brain off, this is a good little trip. Just don't question everything. Yeah. Just enjoy each scene as it comes to you and don't ask why and you'll have a great time. Yeah. It's so funny. I I was very excited when you wanted to talk about this movie. I I genuinely was afraid that me and my opinions on it were going to like clash with yours. I wasn't sure exactly where you would land on this movie, but it, <laughs> it turns out we really feel very much the same way. I recommend this movie. Uh, There is no reason not to watch this movie. I think that it is an unsung classic in the sense of like, like you said, a great representation of the time, 1980 to the max, right? And um, somehow it is both overwritten and underwritten at the same time. Absolutely. It's messy as fuck. I don't know how they did that, but they did it. It's messy, messy, messy. I think if you walk in... Is it a is it is it a horror comedy? I don't think it's intentional, but there's a quirkiness to it. There's like a an unfinishedness or an unrehearsedness, an un like. It... If you want to see a better version of this movie, watch Angel because Angel is absolutely Angel. one of my I favorite love movies. Angel. It is it references past Speaking of old Susan Terrell. exactly. Uh, perfect example of. Well, a horror comedy, because they have full on. See, that's when I compare the two. That's when I look at Fade to Black and go, they weren't trying to be funny. They thought they were making American Psycho. Sure. Clearly, had they just done an American Psycho approach where we're like, don't confuse whether I'm supposed to like him or not from the beginning. Tell me that he's terrible. And then make me like laugh at some of the stuff that he does that can be portrayed as likable. But in this case, they just didn't understand how to shine the light on this character because I was, I was distracted by being so confused. But as long as you know this and you can just be like, I'm going to watch this classic movie and, there are or some great honestly, shots. If you don't know it, because I think something that made me rewatch this movie so many times is is 
trying to grasp what's going on and That's not true. in not in like a I have to study this film way but in in like a it it grabs me in a way of I feel like I want it to be better and I I I have to articulate why I feel that way and how it could be and I actually think that our conversation has really helped me with that it's one of the reasons I love this podcast is because I get to like really really talk about these movies that the people in my day-to-day life don't want to talk about with me. You know what I mean? And like, and I get to, you know, connect with other people who are just as passionate and interested in all of this as I am. So it's so funny. I too call this a treat despite all of the shit talk that I've done for the last two hours, because there's something charming and um, earnest about it. Like these people did think that they were saying something powerful. Also, I think that the thing that is the most relatable about this film is the fact that the character is a huge movie buff. And a lot of horror fans are movie buffs. And we relate to that character. In fact, it reminded me, uh, I have the the DVDs for Amazing Stories. Nice. The the Twilight Zone anthology. Mm -hmm. The Spielberg, yeah. And there is a, one of the episodes, it's called... My something my nightmare i'll look it up uh and it stars a boy who's a hollywood fanatic a horror movie fanatic his sister's played by christina applegate his love interest is robin lively or the girl who loves him and it's it's very similar like and i and i know that there's a couple other a lot of anthologies touch on this all through the 80s 90s 2000s i can think of some from like the haunting hour the Twilight I just watched Zone. the new Creep Show series that's on Shutter. I just watched one with Ethan Hawke about a little kid who's obsessed with yeah, yeah, obsessed with horror. It's movies. a very common generational theme yeah. that pops up in these anthologies, and I think we can all relate to that character because it usually stems around the fact that the family or the people around him are uncertain as to how his obsession is hindering his social abilities. Yeah. That, especially during the 80s, was a big theme because, you know, the 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 safe white way of that that decade in the 70s was like, if you are quirky, you are not socially acceptable and morally you're you're not in line with us. It was much more prominent. Like now that's not really such a big deal we kind of have started to embrace people's obsessions and quirks and we see them as prodigies and all these things but at the time it was like oh no we relate that to mental illness because yeah. you saw how a lot of time like that's the weird thing about fade to black why i think i've always flip-flopped between do i love this or do i hate this is because that's how this movie is built in one scene they make it like, oh, yes, feel feel pity for him. And another scene, it's like, watch out. He's fucking crazy. He's going to kill everybody. But then it keeps going back and forth. Yeah. It, I don't think they even really knew what they were doing. So, no. And I, I don't I, think Meryl I, Streep knew what was happening when she was in a scene where he masturbates to Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. She's, She's awkwardly she, behind him while that's happening, too. Just giving me the eye. Yeah, <sighs> it was a. It's a very strange movie. Definitely watch it. I'm glad that you liked it. I kind of like it less now that we've gone through this more because I feel like, I, you get to a point where like now I can't just go with it. I'm looking for right. clues. No, it's it's been a week of of wa- watching this movie, rediscovering this movie, 
now like understanding what an incel he is and what a like you know just how poorly the women in this movie are written how poorly the men are written in a way that we're like are we supposed to feel sorry for i don't know i feel like we've meant you know it's everything we've been talking about for two hours plus poor stacy was the only one that seemed like she was written well and then they just like sent her out yeah so yeah and the only one with any sense and (laughs) all right roman i can't thank you enough for discussing this movie with me. I had a really great time. Where can my listeners stalk you? So, of course, if you follow Scream Queen Doc on social media, I am right there. You can find me through there. I'm Dracula Spectacula on Instagram. And Where did, where did that name come from? Do you want to know where it came from? It's a, it's a lyrical line from a closing credit song of What We Do in the Shadows really yeah the tv series or the movie yeah oh the tv, TV series. series yeah i love that show that's yeah cool. uh and then you know i work under the com. i have a lot of horror films coming out this this season i've just wrapped a bunch so there's going to be as an audio engineer i have a lot of new projects about to come out so you can always email me there roman at the end audio He's a working man and a success. You're a star. Thank you, sir. I can't thank you all enough for taking the time to listen to this. Thank you, Roman. And we'll see y'all later, spookies. Thanks for coming, Rick or Treating. You can follow the show on Instagram at Rick or Treat Pod. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre, with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. Links to the artist's music can be found in the episode description. Check him out, he's frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well... They're coming to get you, listener. <laughs> <laughs>